Man, I've been looking forward to this morning for quite some time because today we're going to start a new Bible study series. Let me just say this as you're finding your places. I didn't mention it earlier. I neglected to mention that Joseph and Sherry will be in the lobby. You probably noticed there's a display out there uh, with some information about their ministry. And so when this service is over, Joseph and Sherry, just make your way out and stand out there by the display and then our people can come by and get to know you a little better if they want to and ask you some questions and that sort of thing. Thanks for coming. Really, I appreciate you guys, you guys coming. Um, we're going to enter into a new series today, and, and kind of leading into that, I was thinking about this phenomenon. I mean, we all suffer from it, you know, as we attempt to persevere in our Christian lives, and it's day after day and year after year, and especially, certainly for us, we who live in what the Bible calls the last days of the church, it is easy to get weary in well-doing. It is easy to faint before we reap, right? So, if you are here, and if you yourself, or somebody you know, has experienced the miracle of salvation, you've been faithful to be baptized, you've seen God do some amazing things in your life, but somehow, maybe you can't even put your finger on it, over time, your life in the Lord has kind of become stagnant. Your spiritual growth has come to a halt, or maybe even slid back a little bit, and well, if you or anybody you know is in that category, let me just tell you, this Bible study series that we're entering into is for you. It's for you. The title of this series that we've given is called Prime Numbers, and we're going to be studying the book of Numbers. And so Prime Numbers means that we're only going to study chapters 2, 3, 5, 7, 11, 13, 17, 19, <laughs> 23, 29, and 31. Now, it doesn't mean that at all. It just, what it means is, is that we're just going to choose selected stories from the book of Numbers. We're not going to go verse by verse every single story, every single word, because, well, if you've read through the book of Numbers, there's lists and lists of names and people and things throughout the book. And we're not going to hit every single story, but there are some amazing, phenomenal stories that we'll hit over the next several months as we dig into this Bible study series. If you're not aware... Uh, the book of Numbers is the fourth book in your Bible. It's the, the fourth book of Moses, the Pentateuch, the five books that Moses wrote. This is the fourth one. In the English version of your Bible, right, you'll see, and I just find this interesting, that there's 36 chapters, 1,288 verses, and 32,896 words. There'll be a test. No, there won't be a test. But like I said, the book of Numbers contains a lot of lists, and a lot of those lists contain names, and a lot of them contain numbers. But what I want you to learn this morning as we get started is this, that historically, Numbers covers the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. And so if you're familiar with the history of the nation of Israel and they spent 40 years in the wilderness, well, the bulk of that time in the wilderness is described in the book of Numbers. And the events recorded in the book of Numbers, starting in chapter number 1 in the very first verse, the, the, the recording of those events actually is... 13 months after the exodus from Egypt. You might be aware, if you're a Bible student, that the number 13 in the scriptures frequently represents rebellion. Well, then the book of Numbers continues to span a period of, well, 39 years because the first year was already used up in the events that are described in the book of Exodus. So from 13 months in, you go for 39 years, which, not to go crazy with it, but that is 
13 times 3, which did I say represents rebellion? And so you know the story. You wouldn't be surprised to find out that, well, there's a lot of rebellion in the book of Numbers. There's a lot of rebellion in the book of Numbers. It's the journeyings of the children of Israel from Mount Sinai, the place where they received the law, Moses received the law from the Lord, unto the plains of Moab, which is on the east side of the river Jordan, just before they enter into the promised land. And as you're aware, probably, this 40-year wandering in the wilderness is an extended amount of time. Much It took them far longer than God intended and they should have spent in the wilderness. Well, because of rebellion. Because of rebellion. And that's what we're going to see. Because of their rebellion and because of their unwillingness to just trust the Lord and believe what he told them, well, it extended their time in this wilderness. If you were to glance with me in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse number 2, it's interesting where it says, there are 11 days' journey from Horeb, which is really Mount Sinai, 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir, unto Kadesh Barnea, and we'll see as we get into this that Kadesh Barnea is that place where the Israelites sent the spies into the land of Canaan to spy out the land and come back and give report what Canaan looked like. In other words, it potentially is possible that it could have taken only 11 days to get from Sinai to the promised land, but it took them 40 years. And my particular opinion is, is that God never intended for them to make it in 11 days either. That's just kind of the bird's eye view of how quickly they could have made it. Different people can speculate how long God would have intended. The Bible doesn't specifically say. My best guess would be God probably intended for it to take them three and a half years. That would have been my guess. Jesus spent three and a half years teaching his disciples, and there's just something about that is about as much time as it takes to kind of get your bearings if you're trying to follow the Lord to kind of get lined out. But that's just my guess. Look with me, if you will, in Numbers chapter 1, and we'll start in verse number 1 and just read a couple of verses. It starts out this way, And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of the congregation on the first day of the second month. So there you have your 13 months prior. In the second year, after they were come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take ye the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel, after their families, by the house of their fathers, with the number of their names, every male by their poles, from 20 years old and upward, all that are able to go forth to war in Israel, thou and Aaron shalt number them by their armies. So God begins immediately the book of Numbers by saying, go out and number the people. And when you number them, I'm only asking for you to number the males from 20 years old and upward, because 20 years old would be the age at which, in their economy, they are considered adults. Okay, that's the age at which they could then go forth to war. Okay, for us, we say it's 18, but for them, it was 20. So they're numbering only the males. Now you jump down to Numbers chapter 2 and verse 32, because between there, there's just the listings of the names of the people and the numbers of each tribe. And you come to the end of chapter 2, Numbers 2.32. These are those which were numbered of the children of Israel by the house of their fathers. All those that were numbered of the camps throughout their hosts were 600,000 and 3,000 and 500 and 50. So the total number of males from 20 years old and upward that were in the wilderness were 603,550. 603,550. That would leave us to make estimates, and people make estimates, and it's not specifically stated, but it's commented on frequently, and it's reasonable to consider that the total number 
of the children of Israel, including the women and the children, would be in the neighborhood of two million. Two million Israelites that left Egypt and now are on their way to the promised land. So among the themes that is repeated over and over again in the book of Numbers is that we find these two million children of God wandering in the wilderness constantly complaining. Can you imagine? Constantly complaining. I mean, two million, I can't imagine why. Two million people living in a desert, wandering around, faced with endless trials and difficulties. And my personal hero in all the Bible is Moses. Because Moses had to be their pastor. And he had to put up with two million of them screaming and complaining and moaning about stuff practically every chapter. I mean, Moses, I'm sorry, y'all. Moses is the man. <laughs> and he had an ability to handle that challenge in ways that I could never handle, that so many others cannot handle. And I know that's the case because in Numbers chapter 12 and verse number 3, it gives us some insight where it says, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth now meek doesn't mean weak meek means he's under control he was able to take it in stride and he was able to continue to stand for the lord and to lead the people what you need to understand is just as jesus christ according to matthew chapter 4 was led of the spirit into the wilderness it was God Almighty who led Israel into that wilderness. It wasn't the result of some sin. It wasn't punishment for them to go into the wilderness. God had a good reason for having them to go through the wilderness, out of Egypt, through the wilderness for a time, before they were able to enter their promised land. And the reason is what I consider to be the actual theme of the book of Numbers, and we're making it the title of today's sermon, and that is learning to trust through trials. The children of Israel needed the wilderness, and they needed the trials that the wilderness presented so that they could learn to trust the Lord through the trials. And this is going to become so practical for all of us because we all go through trials. We all go through our wilderness. We all go through our difficulties. We all go through times where we want to complain like they did, where we're frustrated with the circumstances like they were. And God wants us to learn to trust him. And that's what we have in front of us. In fact, the trials are not just inevitable in our lives. They're actually good. So the Lord can say things like Romans 8:28, that we know that all things work together for good. To them that love God, to them who are the call, called according to his purpose. We may not enjoy them in the moment, but they are working together a better end. That's why James can say in James 1, 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. There's an advantage to going through the wilderness. 2 Corinthians 12.10, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, Paul said, in reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. Why? For when I am weak, then am I strong. 
My strength is not mine. If I'm leaning on my own, I'm leaning on the wrong thing. The strength is of the Lord, and I can only learn those things when I am weak, when I am faced with these challenges, and I have to cry out to the Lord. This is the journey that the loving Father God gave to Israel so they could learn. They didn't always respond so well. The thing we need to understand is this. God's people need to be prepared before they can be productive. You have to be prepared. You can't just jump out of the gate and be fruitful. There are things you need to learn in your life. There's difficulties you have to work through. You need to see the mighty hand of God working in you and through you so that you can be fruitful, so that you can be productive. We have to learn to exercise our faith if we're ever really going to grow. Now, I'm going to read for us an entire chapter in the book of Deuteronomy in just a minute. It's Deuteronomy chapter 8. There's 20 verses. And the reason I'm going to do that is because Deuteronomy, you may have already understood, Deutero, the second time. Deuteronomy is the soliloquy, the, the story, the reminding of Moses to the children of Israel while they're in the plains of Moab, just before entering the promised land, just before Moses passes away. He reminds Israel of all the things they just went through in the wilderness so they don't forget them when they go into the promised land. So Deuteronomy is a, is a big, long sermon, and it's, it's one where he just reminds them of all the things they've already been through. So Deuteronomy chapter 8 is going to give us a good overview, and, and we're not studying Deuteronomy 8, but I just want you to hear what the Lord has to say to remind us of what it is we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come. Deuteronomy 8.1. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness. Why? To humble thee and to prove thee and to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, Neither did thy fathers know that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. Thy raiment wax not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains of depths, of springs out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness, thou shalt not lack anything in it, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills thou mayest dig brass. When thou hast eaten and art full, then thou shalt bless the Lord thy God for the good land which he hath given thee. He has great promises for us. But he goes on in verse 11, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and are full and hast built goodly houses and dwelt therein. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who led thee through that great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents, 
and scorpions and drought, and where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee, and to do thee, not evil, good, at thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, my power, my power, and the might of my hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember that the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee the power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God and walk after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall ye perish, because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. Now these are the themes, and these are the things that we're going to see going forward, and I'm just telling you, they are very, very practical things. Before we hit the outline, let's just take a second and pray about it, and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we're anticipating, we're excited to be able to learn the things that you have for us, and so this morning, even though what we will see is merely an introduction into this subject, I pray that you would clarify in our hearts and our minds the story and the representation and the application so that as we begin to dig into the chapters after chapters that you can affect change in our lives lord i pray for anyone who's here this morning and may not yet be sure that they have eternal life in jesus christ that this would be the day that they would come to realize how much you love them and have provided for them freely the gift of eternal life and i pray for the rest of us who have already understood and received that gift that well, that we would see our lives in the mirror of your word and be honest with what we see, with what you show us. We, you're a good God and a loving God, and you have great things for us. And we thank you for the things we are even going through, although they may be very difficult today, because we know you have a great plan for our lives. And we pray that you would increase our faith as we look into them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is an introductory message, and we're not jumping into numbers per se i'm going to give you some overview and and some review and background information to set the context for the things that we're going to get into and this will help you going forward in weeks to come the first thing i want us to look at is the picture of numbers the picture of the story of the book of numbers and you may be asking well why does god number the people like did he lose somebody or something well before we get to that question and we will get to that question i think that we should first ask who exactly are these people? Who exactly are these people? Well, who they are is, these are the people who just came out of Egypt. These are the Israelites who left Egypt. And you need to understand, if you don't already understand, that Israel represents something far more profound and far more practical for us today than just an ancient nation. Okay? And the thing I want you to see is, from the scriptures, the first point is Israel is God's son. And the Bible clearly says this in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, where he calls Israel my son, even my firstborn. Now we're speaking of a collective group of people, two million people, but God refers to them in the singular as though this nation represents a single entity, his son. So there's going to be association with the Lord Jesus Christ himself at times, but really the thing I want us to get practically is if you have received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says you also are God's son. 
And so the, the life of the nation of Israel historically pictures for us things that we will go through spiritually. And this makes your Old Testament really come alive. In the wilderness, these are sons of God and they are wandering as strangers and pilgrims in a foreign and a strange land. In the book of Hebrews that refers back to Old Testament events, in chapter 11 and verse 13, it says this, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they, may, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And like us in our lives today, they are people who don't, at this moment of time, have a present, permanent home. They were slaves in Egypt, and they haven't arrived at the place that ultimately is going to be their home yet. They're wandering as strangers and pilgrims in the land. They have just been delivered from their bondage and slavery, the only home that they ever knew for the previous 400 years. Well, going on with the picture, because you need to understand the picture. Israel's God's son, but Egypt is the world. Egypt represents the world system. So we just read in Deuteronomy 8, 14, Then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt, comma, from the house of bondage. Egypt is the place which kept Israel in slavery. They were in bondage to the Egyptians. They were only set free after the plagues of Moses in the first chapters of Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 12, when they got to this thing that was instituted called the Passover, and when they applied, notice, the blood of the Passover lamb, then God comes through the nation and he looks and he sees the homes that have the blood applied. The firstborn is not killed. The homes where the blood is not applied, well, they're killed. And that is a picture of your salvation and my salvation because only you are saved from death, the second death, eternal death, when you apply the blood of the Passover lamb. You can have Passover lambs all over the place, but if you don't personally apply it to your house, to your life, it doesn't apply to you. These are the people. They were in bondage to the world and they were set free only when that happened. The people that God's numbering are people who have been delivered from the world and people who have been delivered from the devil. So in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4, written to the church, you wouldn't be surprised to read, who gave himself for our sins that he might what? Deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. Well, if Israel is God's son and if Egypt is the world, then Pharaoh has to be the devil. Pharaoh represents the devil. In fact, Pharaoh with Nebuchadnezzar are the only two men in your Bible that are referred to as a dragon. Ezekiel 29.3, Speak and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lieth in the midst of his rivers, which hath said, My river is mine own, and I have made it for myself. Well, a very simple cursory comparing Scripture with Scripture will land you in Revelation chapter 20, where God defines things in verse number 2, and he laid hold of the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan. See, Bible study is not hard. 
It's not hard. You just got to do a little bit of work. You got to do a little bit of comparing, and you let the Word of God define itself, and it makes it very clear. Was Pharaoh literally the devil? No, Pharaoh is a type and a picture of the devil who controls the system of Egypt, the system of the world, and tries to hold you all in bondage to it. But you have a way out. It's the blood of the Lamb. That's your way out. Well, as a result, the story of Israel and the Exodus, it's the pilgrim's progress of the Bible. It's written for you. Romans 15 and verse number 4 says, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, when Paul writes this, the beginning of the, the writing of the New Testament, aforetime, the Old Testament in other words, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope we can gain hope by studying the Old Testament scriptures and understand that they were written for our learning. It's not something to divorce yourself from. It's not just the old thing that's been done away with. It doesn't matter anymore. Just hang out in the new. No, you better learn the Old Testament because there's valuable lessons for you. Colossians 1.13, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. So the study of the Old Testament, well, it pictures our journey of faith in Jesus Christ. So Pharaoh's the devil. So as you go through these books of the Bible, the early books of the Bible, the book of Exodus represents for you deliverance. That's what it is. The children of Israel are delivered from this slavery, right? From bondage in the world. You could say it represents salvation, if you like. That's the same progression that we must all go through. It starts with deliverance. It starts with salvation. You're not even on the map if you haven't been delivered yet. So let me ask you a question. Just answer within yourself. Are you sure you're saved? Are you sure that you've been delivered by the blood of the Passover lamb and that you're no longer a slave to sin and a slave to this world and the devil's system? You can be. Well, then the book of Numbers represents what? It represents growth. That's what it represents. Because now they're going to grow through the trials. They need to learn to trust God through the trials. You could say that this is your sanctification. You don't grow in your faith without properly navigating the trials of life, which are allowed by God for the specific purpose of helping you exercise your faith and giving you the opportunity to do so well, and therefore grow up. So Exodus is deliverance or salvation. Numbers is growth or sanctification. Can I tell you that when you study the book of Numbers, Israel didn't grow up in, in the wilderness. In fact, since it's a physical representation of what we will apply as a spiritual truth, the numbering of the children of Israel, the males from 20 years old and upward, right, 603,550, well, there's another numbering at the end of their time in Numbers 26.51 where the total number at the end is 601,730. Numerically, they went down. 1,820 people fewer than when they started. And can I tell you that you won't grow either if you don't face your trials with faith. You won't grow either if you won't be obedient to what God says in the midst of difficulties. This is a real problem in Christian lives today. Exodus represents deliverance. Numbers represents growth. The book of Joshua then represents maturity. That's when they enter into the promised land. They enter into the promised land with Joshua, the Hebrew name equivalent 
of Jesus Christ. Jehovah saves. Joshua. Moses and the law could not bring them in to spiritual maturity, but Jesus, Joshua can, and Joshua brings them in. Now, Canaan does not represent heaven. Canaan represents spiritual maturity. How do you know that? There's still enemies in Canaan. They still got to drive out enemies. It's just a life where now they've matured. Now they're ready to take on the battles of life. So in a sense, you could say this is your ministry service. This is victorious living. And this journey took them 40 years. Everybody in the group that was numbered in the first numbering from 20 years old and older, every single one of them died in the wilderness except two, Joshua and Caleb, who had faith as spies going into Egypt from Numbers 13. We'll get to that. Only two men, every other one, every other person from 20 years old and older, because of their unbelief, died in the wilderness. You know what that teaches us? That teaches us that people today can live their entire Christian lives on a path that might only take 11 days to get there, and they're just walking around in circles. And they never learn the lessons, and they're just wandering around in circles until the day comes and they die, having never achieved spiritual maturity. Just because you prayed the prayer to receive Christ as your Savior 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago does not guarantee that you're actually spiritually mature. Hopefully you are, but it doesn't guarantee it. You have to respond in faith before the trials. That generation never achieved spiritual maturity. And that's a sad warning. Man, don't let that happen to you. So now let's get back to the other question. Why then did God number the people? Well, I want you to consider this idea of the book of life. Remember that thing, the book of life? Revelation chapter 20, verse number 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. You know what you just read there? God keeps written records of all people, of all times. If you're saved, then your name is in the book of life. But even if you're not, your name is in the books. It's in the books. Why would he do such a thing? Can't he keep track? Does he not remember who was saved? Oh, oh Jeff. I was like, I, I think I'm in there, Lord. Check again. Oh, you are in there. Oh, my bad. You think that's happening? No, that's not happening. No, he's making a point. God keeps track. Malachi 3, 16. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him, before the Lord. For them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. You faithfully think upon the Lord and believe him and obey him, your name's in another book. Your good works are in another book. In other words, God counts people because people count to God. That's a little corny, but you'll remember it. God counts people because people count to God. And we, 
as believers in Jesus Christ in a local church, well, we keep track of people and their names too because people matter. Therefore, it's like a local church membership role. It's a list of names. They're written down. So it wouldn't surprise us in Acts 7, 38, when it refers back to this time of Moses, and it says, this is he that was in, what's it called? The church in the wilderness when Stephen preaches that sermon. He calls what Moses had with the children of Israel, well, now in the Acts, in the book of Acts in the New Testament, he refers to it as a church. And there's a list of names recorded. It's very, very interesting. Now, let me just say this to you. If you enjoy your anonymity and you like just kind of coming in and not mixing it up with people and not signing up and you just kind of want to observe what we're doing here, you are welcome to do that. Truly, you are. There's plenty of room for you. But at least let me just say, it does exclude you from the benefits of being recognized as a part of a family. It does. So, you know, whenever you're ready. But this is something the Lord does. That's the picture of numbers. Let's go to the second point, the practice the practice of numbers. And in this case, we're going to go back and study 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, if you're a part of our church, we studied this about eight or nine months ago, and, and we looked into this, and, and we're just going to look at it again. But the story of Israel wandering in the wilderness is much more than just an interesting historical account. We just saw that, well, the Old Testament is written for our learning, right? But specifically, Specifically, the story of the wandering in the wilderness. Well, that has some very specific, practical issues that 1 Corinthians 10 lays out that we are not to forget, that we need to be aware of. God wants us today in the church to apply the lessons that we get from the children of Israel in the wilderness today. So let me just read the first 11 verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples. And they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. So with this before us, these events that are being referred to are events from the wilderness. Some of them come from Exodus, some of them come from Numbers. We're going to walk through them. But I want you to see, starting in verse number 1, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant. So you better get this. How that all our fathers, he's referring to Jewish context audience the fathers of the house of israel they were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea so don't be ignorant of israel's story from the old testament specifically this idea 
of the pilgrim's progress. They were in bondage to the world. They were saved by the blood of the Lamb. They were baptized in the sea. And they learned to trust the Lord through the trials of the wilderness. So this breaks down into a couple of categories. And the first thing that God says is, letter A in your outline, don't be ignorant of the three helps to spiritual maturity. There are three things that are going to assist you to achieve spiritual maturity. And those show up starting in verse number two, and the first one being the church. Number two, verse two, and we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, this is the reference to Exodus chapter 14 when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea, arguably the greatest physical miracle in all the Bible. Certainly the greatest miracle that's referred to more and more and more and more over and over again, referring back to the great hand of God crossing the Red Sea. And here it's referred to as a baptism, which ought to make sense to us because we just saw in Acts 7.38 that, well, the children of Israel at that time were called the church, (laughs) the church in the wilderness. But they weren't called the church in the wilderness until they got to the wilderness, until after they were baptized. Why is that? Because baptism signifies your entrance into the church. The spiritual baptism when you confess Christ as your Lord and Savior and he spiritually immerses you into the spiritual body of Christ, the church, that's your salvation. But physical water baptism after spiritual salvation, well, that is your entrance into the local body of a local church. That's what it is. So that's an important thing. The first thing that Israel did after being saved by the blood of the Lamb was get baptized in the sea. And the first thing that you should do after you get saved by the blood of the Lamb is you should be baptized in water. And you should join a Bible-believing local church. That's what you should do. I mean, you're spiritually baptized into the body of Christ the instant you believe, of course. But but this water baptism thing is a commandment. So again, let's just stop for a second and ask ourselves these questions because, well, I don't know where you're at, but the Lord does, and He saw fit that you would be here today. Are you saved? Are you sure? Well, if so, have you been scripturally baptized by immersion in water after your salvation and well if so are you a member of a local church are you a member of this local church have you used that to enter into the fellowship of the body of christ the church is a critically important element for you to be able to grow spiritually The next thing we see is in verse number three. They did all eat the same spiritual meat. Well, that's the word of God. Of course it's the word. We have the church and we have the word of God. This is a reference to Exodus chapter 16 where God rains down manna in the wilderness. And we heard about that in Deuteronomy 8 when we went through there. And you know the story of manna. It came down and literally the name manna means, you ready for this? What is it? (laughs) So it came down and they said, manna. What's that? Well, that's your food for the next however many years it takes you. Uh, that's, that's what you get. And in the stories of the wanderings in the wilderness, you know, they said, well, we're, we're sick of manna. We want other stuff. We'll get to those stories when we get there. But, I mean, I mean, how many ways can you prepare it? I mean, really. I mean, you make manna pancakes and manna burgers and manna souffle and manna soup and manna. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. They got tired of eating that thing. Like Christians get tired of the word of God after a while. See where we're going? See where we're going? God gave them food from heaven, fresh, new, every day. 
And they all did eat, oh my goodness, I can't believe he's going to say this, the same spiritual meat. Not 20 different versions of it. The same spiritual meat, y'all. That's what he said. Don't get mad at me. Listen, every mom in here knows if you want to grow, you got to eat. And your Heavenly Father knows it too. If you're going to grow spiritually, you need spiritual food. Hey, Christian, do you feed on God's Word every day? Oh, I forgot. Did you forget to eat yesterday? The Word of God is critical to your achieving spiritual maturity. Number three, the Spirit. Of course the Spirit. Verse number four. And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. The reference is to Exodus chapter 17. The smiting of the rock. When Moses hits it with the stick and the water gushes out, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit there you have it this is your connection with god through his holy spirit the holy spirit of god dwells in you and he teaches you the bible so the story of israel as we read through first corinthians chapter 10 up to this point it starts out great they were awesome they had everything was perfect and the three elements that you need for a successful fruitful life in Jesus Christ are the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and the people of God. That's what you need. You need all three. You can't divorce yourself from one of the three and expect to grow. But can I also add by saying, just having them doesn't guarantee victory in your life? You say, well, I have the Spirit of God. I'm saved. I have a copy of the Word of God. It's sitting right there in a prominent place on my shelf. And I'm a member of this church, and I even go sometimes. Okay, that's not enough. You have to actually submit yourselves to these things, right? In order to grow and to mature. Well, that doesn't happen for everybody, sadly, because, well, people are people and people are carnal. So, verse 5 continues and says, But with many of them, well, God was not well pleased, <laughs> for they were overthrown in the wilderness. See, that word overthrown means they died. That's what it means. Numbers 26, 65. Everybody that was 60 years old and upward, so they started at 20, they were there 40 years, 60 years old and upward, goners, done. They were overthrown. God wasn't pleased with them. The people that entered in then was the generation that replaced them, 20 and younger, and the babies they had. So we started with 603,000, we ended up with 601,000. Okay. But they were overthrown in the wilderness. They refused to believe God. So let's go on to the second main point, letter B. Don't be ignorant of the three hindrances to spiritual maturity. The first thing is the lust of the eyes. You saw this coming. The lust of the eyes. This is verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things. The lust of the eyes, as they also lusted. They, these are our examples, but they're bad examples. Why is that? Well, because we need to see that. Because we have the same sin problem that they did. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10, but they that will be rich, you don't have to be rich to wish you were, they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare and to many foolish and hurtful lusts, 
which drown men in destruction and perdition for the love of money, not money, the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they've erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So James chapter 4 and verse 2 says, Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war and yet you have not. Why? Because you ask not. You see, God intends that we would and that we should learn from history. The children of Israel didn't like their circumstances. They wished they had more comfort who hadn't been there at one time or another. They wished they had things they couldn't have. They weren't content, in other words. Just walking with God wasn't enough. Sure, the circumstances were tough, but they were not alone. It should have been enough to walk with the Lord, but it wasn't. There's another form of covetousness. It's idolatry. Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence. Notice, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You covet after something means you desire to place it between you and God. That thing by definition is an idol. So back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now verse number 7. Neither be ye idolaters as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. This comes from Exodus chapter 32. This is the famous story of the golden calf. Moses is up on the mountain getting the word of God and Aaron and the rest of the children of Israel at the bottom, and they just couldn't wait. They couldn't endure long enough to get God's word. God wasn't coming through for them on their timetable. So they went and made their own God. And they built a golden calf, one of the most ridiculous stories in the Bible, and said, this is the God that delivered us from Egypt. Are you kidding me? You would say, well, I would never do such a thing. Okay, you might not melt down your rings and earrings and form it into a golden calf, but oh my goodness, we get impatient and we can't wait for the Lord. And we just decide that other things are going to be the things that we're going to pour our attention and love and adoration and money into. It's not all that different. God's response in Exodus 32 and verse 7, The Lord said unto Moses, Go get thee down for thy people, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves in so doing. They've marred, they've destroyed themselves. And God was ready, if you go back and read Exodus 32, God said, get out of the way, Moses. I'm going to toast them all. And you, you read the Bible and you come to whatever, what I'm going to say may not land well in your theological perspective, but listen, you just read the Bible, it'll throw a monkey wrench in anybody's theology. Moses talked God out of it. He talked God out of it. And I think that was part of the demise why Moses never made it in the promised land, but that's, that's a story for another day. Number two, the lust of the flesh. Of course it's the lust of the flesh. You knew this was coming. You know what the last one is too, don't you? Verse number eight, neither let us commit fornica fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and 20,000. That's a reference to Numbers 25. Numbers 25, one through three, and Israel abode in Shittim and the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. And Israel joined himself to Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Well, this is the ultimate example of flesh lusting 
after more flesh. So you continue to read in Numbers, and you'll find that God sent a plague, and in that plague, 24,000 people died. I thought we just read 23,000. Yeah, I know, it's not a contradiction, because it says here that in, that, in one day, in one day, 23,000 died. 1,000 died the next day. 24,000 people died. I want you to understand something. In God's forbidding them to join themselves with the people of Moab, he's not forbidding interracial marriage. That's not what he's doing. He's forbidding any physical act that leads to a spiritual negative consequence. That's what he's doing. Listen, don't kid yourself. Genesis chapter 34, first three verses, And Dinah, the daughter of Leah, which she bare unto Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and defiled her. That's a rape. And it says, And his soul clave unto Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. And he loved the damsel and spake kindly unto the damsel. Why did his soul cleave unto her? Well, because physical Sexual relationships have spiritual consequences. That's why. Don't kid yourself. As often as you join yourself to another physically, you leave part of your soul with that person. You leave part of your soul with that person. Now, I'm going to make one statement, and we're an adult crowd, and I'll say it with respect. But I want you to consider how much of your soul is left. How much of your soul is left? Unmarried young adult person, how much do you want to have left for your husband or wife when you get them? Something to think about. That's the lust of the flesh, and it'll destroy your spiritual maturity. Number three, the pride of life. You knew this was coming, last two verses. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. That's Numbers 21. They opposed Moses' leadership. They were weary of the long journey. They wanted a new leader that would take them, not into promised land, take them back to Egypt. We're better off back there. That act of complaining about the leader God placed over you is an affront to God himself. It's called tempting Christ. Psalm 106, 14. But they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. Exodus 17, it's a different context, but we get the understanding of the words and the definitions God uses. Exodus 17, 2, Wherefore the people did chide with Moses, there it is, and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? Chiding with Moses equals tempting the Lord, see? So in Numbers 21.5, God sent fiery serpents to bite the people and to kill them. And if God didn't have mercy and set up a serpent on a pole, that if they would just look to it, they would be healed. Which is a beautiful picture we'll get to when we get to Numbers 21. They would have all died in that wilderness. Back to 1 Corinthians 10. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Well, this could refer to a lot of places in the book of Numbers, but in Numbers 14, specifically, they did a lot of murmuring and complaining, specifically when the spies went into the land and they came back out and they gave report of the greatness of the land of Canaan and they gave report of the greatness of the enemy and the giants. And we were as grasshoppers in their sight. 
And everybody except Joshua and Caleb said, man, I'm out. I'm done. I ain't going in there. You're crazy. And as a result, they didn't get to enter into the promised land except Joshua and Caleb, who believed God through the trials. God gave it to us. Let's rise up and take it now. Murmuring and complaining against Moses as a result of their own cowardice, as a result of their own unbelief. These three things, of course these are the three things, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. They will derail your growth and maturity in Christ. These are the three general categories that affect each and every one of us. The circumstances in your life may be a little different than they are in mine. But these are the trials that we all face one way or another, which God leads us into and allows to happen to test us to see what we're made of. We all have wonderful things to say about our faith in Christ while everything's going great. And the Lord's like, awesome, let's see. Because as we've said many times in this church, what you believe is what you live. And all the rest is just religious talk. It's just religious talk. Let's see. We have to learn to trust in the trials. Life, all of life, it's just a test, y'all. It's just a test. Respond well. So you can see the story of Israel in the wilderness, it's very practical, but especially for us today, especially because verse 11 from 1 Corinthians says, Now all these things happened unto them for ensamples. It's a different word than examples. An ensample is a, an illustration lived out physically in the life of another. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Well, that's us, y'all. That's us. That's the last day's church-age saint. Why is that? Well, it's because in the last days, perilous times shall come. We'll see these temptations and circumstances. It'll challenge your ability to trust the Lord more and more and ramp up and get hotter and hotter. And we see people falling by the wayside left and right but you can make it. Listen to the last day's description, 2 Timothy 3. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, Lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. Don't hang with those people, y'all. Don't let them influence you. That's why he didn't want the Israelites to marry the daughters of Moab. Same reason. Don't let them bring your heart down. It's just not worth it. Let me ask you some questions and we're done. What trial are you going through right now? I'm not trying to diminish it. They are real, they can be severe. And they are serious. But what are they? What is God wanting you to learn? Have you considered it in that light? What is God wanting you to learn through the trial? And will you trust him? Even when things don't seem to make sense. Let me ask you some other questions. And we're going to pray. Are you sure that you have Receive the free gift of eternal life because of the shed blood of the Lamb? Have you been biblically baptized? See, I don't know where you're at. I don't know what the next step is for you that God wants you to do. 
Would you like to join us in a covenant relationship as a member of this church? We'd love to have you. Do you read God's word every day? Is that a regular thing for you to be fed in the word of God? Would you like to be taught? Would you, we have a discipleship program that can help you. Let us know you're interested in that. You see, there's all kind of places for us to apply these things that we're going to learn as we walk through this book. But right now, for today, we're done talking. It's time for us to talk to the Lord. So let's pray.